Well, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, before we continue our worship in the Word in just a moment, I did want to make one more announcement. Uh, if you were in your bulletins, you'll see that we had a little flyer in there um, for men's ministry that we're looking at starting up in the new year. And Corky Gorley, Corky, could you give us a wave? If any of the guys sees Corky right over there, if you're interested in helping getting men's ministry kick-started as we plan for groups, discipleship, and events, um, Corky is the guy to see. He would love to chat with you, uh, get to know you, and uh, get you on his team in some way, and so you can chat with him or let us know in the office, and we'd be happy to follow up with you. As we continue our worship in the Word, let's go ahead and bow in prayer. Uh, Father, we are so grateful uh, to celebrate the birth of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ as we eagerly anticipate his second coming. Father, we thank you for our time in worship, in song, and as we turn to your word, we pray that you would prepare our hearts and minds for the truth that you have for us. We pray, Lord, that we would not just be informed by your word, but we would be transformed by it. So, Father, this morning, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. And who we are not in Christ, we ask that you'd make us, and we ask it all in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, there's an old Peanuts cartoon written by Charles Schultz, of course, and in it there is Lucy and Linus, their brother and sister, and they're looking out the window and they're a bit disappointed because of the rain outside, and Lucy begins the conversation and says, boy, look at it, rain, I wonder if it's going to flood the whole earth. Linus responds with the conviction he has, it will never do that. In the ninth chapter of Genesis, God promised that he would never flood the earth again. And the sign of the promise is the rainbow. Lucy smiles and says, you've taken a great load off my mind. <laughs> and I love Linus's response. Sound theology has a great way of doing that. <laughs> Uh, this morning, as we continue our, in our study of the letter of Galatians, chapter 3, we'll be in verses 15 to 22 together. We're going to take a look at another of God's promises given to Abraham. God's promise given to Abraham that would find its fulfillment 2,000 years later in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who would be born in a manger and who would die on a cross. As you make your way there in Galatians chapter 3, the question we're going to consider together is how the promise given to Abraham assures us of the one true gospel that we as guilty sinners are saved by grace through faith alone, that in Christ we are justified by faith and not by the works of the law. As you head there, it's always helpful to get some context. As Paul is writing this letter, his purpose is to declare and to defend the one true gospel. Beginning in chapter 3, Paul has been calling these believers back to the truth of the gospel because many of them that he's writing to perhaps have strayed. They have been deceived into believing a false gospel, which is no gospel at all, as he said in chapter 1. And these false teachers, what they were teaching, as we've been reminded week after week, is that faith in Jesus is important, they taught, but that faith in Jesus was not enough. 
Now, you could trust in Christ for your salvation, but you also needed to trust in circumcision. You needed to trust in your ability to observe the, the Mosaic law. And so Paul was calling these believers back to the truth. And as he called them back to the truth, beginning in our text, he's going to answer this question for his reader and for us this morning, that uh, when it comes to the promise of God, how does it assure us that the one true gospel is true, that in Christ we are justified by faith and not by the works of the law. I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of the word together. Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 15, reading to verse 22. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through the angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The word of the Lord, y'all may be seated in the presence of God this morning. In light of our text, we're going to consider how the promise given to Abraham assures us of the one true gospel, that in Christ we are justified by faith alone. We are not justified by the works of the law. We are justified in Christ by faith alone. I'd like to give you two headings that will guide us in our study this morning. Uh, first, we're going to be in verses 15 to 18, and we're going to consider how the promise of Abraham is reliable. The promise of Abraham is reliable. And then in verses 18 to 22, we're going to consider how the promise given to Abraham is compatible, how it's compatible with the purpose of the law and why it was given in the Old Testament. We begin in verses 15 to 18 and consider how the Abrahamic uh, the promise given to Abraham is indeed reliable. And the manner in which Paul tells us that it's reliable and also relevant, relevant in the sense that it assures us of the one true gospel, that in Christ we are justified by faith, is first, he, as he speaks to his readers, he refers to them as brethren. He says, brethren, and we could easily overlook that, but it's just a helpful reminder. The reason why he calls them brethren here is to encourage them in their faith and to encourage us as the reader in our faith. Uh, it's, a, it's a helpful reminder that as Paul began chapter 3, if you remember, Paul referred to these that he calls brethren now as foolish Galatians. He said, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Um, and so Paul, when he stated that to them, he confronted them, not because he hated them, but because he loved them. 
And the most loving thing that he could do for these believers who have strayed, who have been deceived by these false teachers, back in verse 1, was to call them back to the truth of the one true gospel. And so he said, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? By what spell have you come under that you would stray from the one true gospel, that you are justified by faith alone? And Paul now refers to these fellow believers as brethren. Because those who are truly believers who have been deceived for a time will come back to the truth of the one true gospel that they are justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And the reason he calls them brethren is to encourage them in their faith. It's so important for me to take a moment to pause here and to remind us of the importance it is for us to remind one another of who they are in Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ, and encourage one another in the faith. It's important for me to remind us of our need to be encouraged in the faith, which is why it's important for us as believers to gather with fellow believers, whether in large groups like a Sunday morning gathering or a Wednesday gathering, but also in small groups, because when we get together, we have an opportunity to be encouraged in the faith and be reminded that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't know about you, but there are plenty of distractions that come my way every single day and every single week. The first thought that comes in my mind at times are not focused on the Lord, they're distractions. Sometimes my first thought of the day is a worry. Perhaps it's the things that I have to do for the day, and I have to reorient my mind back to who God is. And so I'm glad in the midst of the distractions of the world where my priorities sometimes get misplaced, when I gather with the people of God, I'm reminded of what those priorities are and what first things that I need to be put first. This time of the year is a good reminder of why we need to be encouraged in the faith, reminding one another that we are brothers and sisters in Christ because around this time of the year, we get distracted. We get distracted by all the decorations, the lights that you have to put up. You might disagree with your spouse what decorations need to be put up. And in the midst of all that, you lose focus of the true reason for the season. There are gifts that need to be bought. There are family gatherings that need to happen. And there are meals that need to be prepared. And in the midst of the hustle of it all, we lose focus of what the season is all about. That's why it's so important that we gather that we make it a priority to gather, not just during this time of the year, but the entire year, so that we can encourage one another in the faith. So that when we get distract, distracted, when we get discouraged, like Paul calls on these believers, he calls them brethren, those who have been deceived and led astray, may we be reminding one another that we are fellow brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus, our Savior and Lord, adopted as sons and daughters of the living God because of what Christ has done for us. So he begins by by proving the reliability of the promise given to Abraham by referring to them as brethren. Secondly, by uh, using a human example. Paul continues in verse 15 and says, Brethren, I speak in the manner of men. Paul says here, I want to give you a human example, a, a human illustration or a human analogy. And what he's going to argue here is from the lesser to the greater. Paul is going to argue here that when it comes to human contracts or covenants, uh, they are respected by those who make those contracts. And if 
those who make those contracts respect the conditions that cannot be changed, cannot be annulled, but that are binding, how much more when it comes to God's promises to, to Abraham? How much more God's promises to us if man respects the conditions that are made? How much more will God honor his promises? Paul puts it this way. Um, Though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to to it. In this human example or human analogy, Paul says consider a covenant of between two individuals or a contract that's made. Now, this could be a business contract, but the word there, covenant, is actually the term that was used in Paul's day to refer to your, 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 your will, your will in last testament, your final will in last testament. And when that is signed, when that is ratified, when that is confirmed, it cannot be annulled, it cannot be set aside, and it cannot be changed. In other words, if you go through the formal process and say, this child gets more money, this child does not get more money after I pass, and circumstances change, in the end, you cannot change that unless you go through a formal process. Again, if I could use the example of a contract between a renter and their landlord, let's say it's a six-month lease, the landlord, after the contract is signed, cannot say, hey, my son is coming into town for a week, and so you're going to have to leave the house, and then you can come back later. You cannot add new conditions after it's already been made. And what the argument Paul is using here is when it comes to human contracts that humans respect, how much more God is going to honor his contract, his promise. And so Paul refers to them as brethren, and then he uses a human example, and then thirdly, he describes the promise made to Abraham. Paul goes on to say, beginning in verse 16, about the recipients of the promise. Verse 16 says, now to Abraham Abraham and his seed were the promises made. We've just talked about human contracts, now we're going to talk about the covenant, the promise made between God and Abraham. To whom was the promise given? Well, the text says to Abraham and his seed. To really understand what the promise given to Abraham was, why it's reliable, and how it's relevant even to us here this morning, we've got to go back to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And we've touched on this as we've been in our study, but I'd like to read it to you because it helps give us some understanding here. The text in Genesis 12, 1 through 3 Um, Abraham is given three promises, land, seed, and blessing. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, whose name would be changed to Abraham, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. So the first promise given to Abraham and his seed is land. You are going to inherit a land. Second promise is seed. It says in verse 2, And I will make you a great nation. Elsewhere, Abraham is told that your seed, your offspring, will be as numerous as the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. How many is that? Too many to count. And so he has promised that his seed will be great and his name will be great. And then the third, bless, the third promise is blessing. I will bless you, make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
So not only are Abraham and his seed blessed, but all through Abraham will be blessed. All the families of the earth will be blessed through Abraham. So the question is, who is being referred to here when it says Abraham and his seed? The text goes on to say in verse 16, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. So who are, Paul, who are Abraham uh, seed referring to here? Well, number one, we're referring to Isaac, his son. Do you remember Isaac is the son of promise? Abraham, do you remember how old Abraham was when he and Sarah had Isaac? He was 100 years old. Sarah was 90. You can imagine when they were told that they were going to have a child in their old age, their response was laughter. <laughs> Isaac means laughter. You go into a doctor today and say, hey, we're in our 90s and we're thinking about having children. Some of the doctors might laugh at you as well. And so they had this child of promise, Isaac, in their old age, and God would pass on this promise through Isaac. Not just through Isaac and his seed, but through Jacob. And then Jacob had 12 sons. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. And so you had this promise of the seeds of Abraham growing into a great nation. And you get to see that through this promise concerning the seed. But ultimately, how will all of the families of the earth be blessed through the 12 tribes of Israel? Through the coming of the Messiah, who is Christ the Lord. So when this promise is made to Abraham and his seed, Paul clarifies that we're not just talking about the seeds of Abraham, but the seed of Abraham in whom the promises of God will be fulfilled through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So when we're talking about the recipients of this promise, we're not just talking to about Abraham and his offspring. We're talking about Abraham and the coming of the Messiah, who is Christ the Lord. And this reminds us this morning that we can also be sons and daughters of Abraham, not biologically, but spiritually, if we are found in Christ. And like Abraham, if we are justified by faith and not by works of the law, do we receive the blessing of Abraham? Let me bring you back to in chapter 3 of Galatians to verses 6 to 9 that reminds us of this. Verse 6 says, Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. So who are the true sons of Abraham? Not those who are of the works of the law. Whether even if you are a physical descendant of Abraham, a true son of Abraham is not biological, it's spiritual. And if you are made right with God by faith, that is how you receive the promise. Verse 8 says, And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. This morning, not only are we reminded that the promise given to Abraham is reliable, but the promise given to Abraham is relevant to every single one of us who are found in Christ because by faith, we are blessed alongside of believing Abraham as chapter 3 verse 9 tells us. And that's a great truth to behold. 
That's a great truth to rejoice in. And so the promises of God given 2,000 years before the coming of Christ to Abraham is realized in Christ. And if we are in Christ, we are sons and daughters of Abraham. You know the kids sing the song, Father Abraham had many sons. And many sons said, Father Abraham, I am one of them and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. How are we sons of a daughters of Abraham? By faith and not by the works of the law. And so first we begin with the recipients of the promise given to Abraham as Paul describes it. Um, as we continue to read, we get to read about the, the kind of promise given which is binding. Not only are human contracts binding and cannot be annulled or set aside, but so is the promise of God. Verse 17 says this, and this I say that the law which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ that it should make the promise of no effect. Why does Paul argue that the law which came centuries after the promise given to Abraham cannot annul it? Well, because the false teachers were arguing this. They were saying, yes, Paul, we can agree with you that Abraham was justified by faith. He believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. But centuries later, when the law came, things changed. Yes, Abraham was justified by faith, but when it came to the law, now we are justified not by faith, but by the works of the law. And Paul says that's not how the promise of God works. God's promise to Abraham, which is fulfilled in Christ, to Jew and Gentile alike, cannot be annulled or set aside, even with the coming of the law. So you're not justified by the works of the law, you're justified by faith alone in Christ. And so Paul first reminds us that the promise, the kind of promise given is binding. And then thirdly, I want us to consider in his description the source of the promise given to Abraham. Who's the source? It's God. God is the source of the promise. And if God makes a promise, you can take this to the bank. He's going to keep his promise. Now, as humans, we may make promises to Others, I make promises to my wife, but she can be, she'll tell you if she asks, if you ask her, there are times when I disappoint her. There are times when you may disappoint others, and we do that, but God will never disappoint you. When God makes promises, he keeps his promises, and he will come through. How is it that the Law can't change things after the promise was given. Can I give you an example? For, for example, if, if Mirna and I decided that we were going to adopt a child and we were going to adopt them as an infant, and so let's say we go through the process and, and it turns out to finalize the document, we sign it with our name saying that this child, even though they are not our biological children, this child is ours. This child, in the eyes of the law, and anyone else would say, this child is mine, they belong to me. But as that child grows up and grows older, because my wife and I want to have order in our household, we need to discipline our children, we begin to set forth rules. And we tell this child as they grow up in our home, all right, you've got to do your chores, 
and take out the trash or fix your bed. And as you grow older, there's going to be a time that you need to be home by. Can you imagine if my wife and I told this child, listen, if you don't obey the rules of our house, you know what we're going to do with that contract? We're going to tear it up. That doesn't work that way. When you make a promise, you keep that promise. And what they're arguing here is, is when God made a promise, he's not going to show you a new way in which the law is going to um, provide a right standing before God and acceptance before God. That's not how it works. It's a promise given by God that through this promise, which is fulfilled in Christ, you and I, Jew and Gentile alike, are justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Something else I want to sh show you in Scripture is that the promise given to Abraham by God was an unconditional promise. And this is so important. I'd like to invite you in your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. And we're going to be reading verses 8 to, seven, 8 to 17. That will help us understand why this promise is unconditional. Why this promise is not dependent on Abraham or his seed, but is dependent on the faithfulness of God. And this gives us great hope this morning as well. If you were going to make a covenant in Abraham's day, one of the ways that they did it was they grabbed a number of different animals. You'd take these animals and then you'd cut them in half. Now for us, when we confirm a promise, we usually do it with a signature, right? I don't know anybody who's taken a number of different animals and cut them in half, but what they would do is they would cut these animals in half and then they would, they would put them on uh, one side on, on two different sides and then both parties would walk through the middle. And this was a very graphic way of saying if either of the parties break the covenant, may we be cut up and cut off like these animals that are cut up. And so that was the manner in which you confirmed the covenant. You didn't sign your name, took a few animals, cut them in half, and said, if I don't observe my half of the contract, then may this happen to me as well. But this is what we hear in Genesis 15, verse 8. Um, and, and he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? And he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer. Give me... Give me a, a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Why? Because he's going to cut them up. Then he brought all these two women, cut them in two, down the middle, and placed each piece opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abra Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them four hundred years. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now pay attention to verse 17. And it says, And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. What is this burning torch? What is this light? It's the presence of God confirming that this is a promise that's going to be kept. Who does not walk through these animals? Abram. 
Abram, who will become Abraham, he does not walk through. What is that telling us? This promise is not conditional upon Abraham. It is conditional upon God's promise and God's faithfulness. This is good news for us this morning. You are justified not by your ability to obey the law or to participate in your ability or works of the law, but you are justified by faith in Christ, in the promise of God, that through Abraham and his seed would come the Messiah, and through Christ, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so we're reminded who's the source of the promise. It's God. When God makes promises, he keeps promises, and not just this promise made to Abraham. All the promises of God's word we can stand upon. We can take to the bank. We can trust in the Lord that we worship and serve. And what an encouragement that is for us this morning. It assures us of the one true gospel that we are justified in Christ by faith and not by works of the law. And then the conclusion of the promise is listed in verse 18. It says, For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. If you are going to inherit the promise... If you are going to receive the blessing alongside of Abraham by faith, according to verse 9, then if you work your way into the favor of God or into the acceptance of God, it's not based on promise anymore. It's based on you. And what we are called to do is to shift our focus off of ourselves and our performance and onto the promises of God because the promise was given to Abraham. This morning we are reminded what places you in a right standing with God, what places me in a right standing with God. What gives us acceptance as guilty sinners before a holy God is not our performance or our ability to please God, but is based on the promise of God that in Christ all the families of the earth will be blessed, including you and me, including Jew and Gentile, which is why Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. This morning, what we are reminded in this, these verses 15 to 18 is that the promise given to Abraham assures us of the one true gospel that in Christ you and I are justified by faith and not by the works of the law. If I could just give us a few takeaways in light of this incredible truth this morning. The first is this, that we would believe God's promise. That we would believe God's promise. That by faith, as we read in chapter 3, verse 9, we are blessed alongside of believing Abraham. And what makes us that what puts us in a right standing with God and gives us acceptance is not our performance, but his promise. Believe in Christ and the promise he provides each one of us that we are justified by faith. To do that this morning, in this season of Advent, you simply have to admit your need for Christ. Admit 
in, rego- in regards to Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short. Believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be, the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world, who took the place of guilty sinners and provides a path to everlasting life and confess Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, the one that you're going to follow all the days of your life into eternity. And if you've never put your faith and your trust in Christ, the invitation is to do it now. You don't have to wait till the end of the service. You can give your life to Christ and to receive the promise of the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life in Christ, your Savior and your Lord. So believe the promise. Secondly, stand in awe of God's promise. Hey, when you think about the coming of Christ as a babe in a manger, isn't it interesting to note when we take a look at the 66 books of the Bible that it wasn't an afterthought of God who said, you know, what would be a good idea? Turns to the second person of the Trinity. How about you go to earth and be a babe in a manger and then grow up to die in a cross? No, this was the plan of God before the foundations of the world. And this causes us, as we consider the promise of God given to Abraham, to stand back in awe and wonder at the greatness of our God who planned it all the way before the foundations of the world, the coming of Christ. It was given in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. From the seed of the woman would come one who would crush the head of the serpent. I was reading a Advent book this past week by a professor who's now the president of the seminary that I attended, and, and he was talking about Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and he was using a, 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 an example of a time when he had an interaction with a snake. You ever had any interactions with snakes? It wasn't just any snake, it was a rattlesnake. And you know if you get bit by those, these rattlesnakes... Uh, it's deadly. You, you, you could lose your life if you don't go to the hospital. And he, had, he was in tall grass. He had boots. And he was walking around in this tall grass so he couldn't see what was below him. But all he could hear was tick, 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 And as he could hear it, he realized he was standing on the snake. And what he realized is if he took his foot off of that snake, he would immediately get bit. But instead of just lifting up his boots and running, he started to stomp that snake till it was dead. And then after he stomped it to death, he felt a little pain in his ankle. But he says it wasn't because it, he was bitten. It was because he stomped that thing so hard he pulled a tendon <laughs> in there. <laughs> what we're told in Scripture is that one day the seed of the woman who is Christ the Lord will crush the head of the serpent, will stomp that thing dead. And through his death on the cross, Christ defeated sin, death, and Satan and ratified it three days later when he rose in newness of Life It causes us to stand back in awe and wonder that even at the beginning when the fall occurred in Genesis 3.15, the promise was already given. And then in Genesis chapter 12, as we've just read it in the first three verses, the promise is confirmed and then it's revealed in the Gospels through the birth of our Savior and our Lord, Jesus Christ. In the Gospel of Matthew, we get to hear about the genealogy of Jesus that goes all the way back to Abraham. And in Christ, all the promises, the law and the prophets are fulfilled in him. He's the central figure of Scripture. Doesn't that cause you to stand back and on wonder of the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ? 
So number one, believe God's promise, stand in awe of God's promise, and then thirdly, share God's promise. Share God's promise with fellow believers. Not just unbelievers. We'll get to that in a moment. Share God's promise with fellow believers. You know, when we gather around this Advent season, we get to be reminded by one another, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We can respond to one, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. We are recipients of his grace. We are recipients of his peace. And we can, we can embrace one another, being reminded that there's a saying that goes, um, um, blood is thicker than water. Well, what we see in scripture is that faith is thicker than blood. What will bind us closer together is not necessarily our blood relations, but our faith relations. And our faith relations should be so strong that we see our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ for what they are. We're going to spend eternity with you and me forever and ever and ever. And that's something we need to remind one another about, encourage one another about that we have been found in Christ. Then secondly, not only should we remind one another, but share it with others around this season. If I could encourage us to to challenge us in one way, I'd like to encourage you this month and this week to think about at least one person this Christmas season. It could be more. But I want you to think about at least one person who God possibly can, can use you to minister to this Christmas and possibly introduce them to Jesus. Someone who doesn't know the Lord. Could be in your family. It could be among your friends. Could be a neighbor that you might be inviting over for a Christmas dinner. Possibly invite them to our Christmas musical this weekend as the children are going to uh, point us to Christ and what the true reason of the season is all about. I want you to think about that one person. Maybe one person comes to mind right now, and I want to challenge you, starting today, to pray for that person every single day. And as you pray for them every single day, seize the opportunity when it avails itself. As you get to invite them or talk to them as they're constantly on your mind. And what a wonderful thing. (coughs) What a wonderful thing it would be if you had the opportunity as you rely on God to turn their heart to him to at the end of this Christmas season say, God used me to introduce them to Christ. And what a wonderful opportunity that would be. And so share the promise and lastly, celebrate the promise. This is the time of the year that we need to be shouting from the rooftops. Christ has come as a babe in a manger. He died on a cross. He rose again three days later and he's coming back again in glory to set up his kingdom. That's why we worship That's why we gather as the people of God and lift our hands in praise in community to give God glory, honor, and praise. And so, as we consider how the promise of Abraham assures us of our, of, of the one true gospel, that we, in Christ, we are justified by faith and not by the works of the law. The second thing we see in our text in verses 18 to 22 is that the promise given to Abraham is compatible with the purpose of the law. You know, the question that might be raised to Paul, having said that, hey, the promises of God cannot be annulled by the law. You're justified not by your performance in obeying the law, but by the promise of God that's been given. So the next question is, what's the point of the law, Paul? 
Why did God give the law in the first place? And Paul now articulates the reason through two questions that he presents and answers that he gives. The first question is presented in verse 19. What purpose then does the law serve? In other words, why was the law even given? If it can't justify us or bring acceptance before God for us, then why was it given? The first reason, the purpose of the law, it was added because of our transgression. The law was given. It reveals the righteousness of God, but it also reveals how far we fall short. In Romans chapter 3, verses 19 to 20, <clears throat> the text says, Now we know what, that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. In Scripture, we see the, the law is like a mirror. You look into the mirror and you, you see the imperfections that you have. Hopefully, a majority of us, before we left this morning, took a look in the mirror. Some of us said, well, this can be fixed. Other things, not so much. But when you take a look at the, the mirror of God's word and the mirror of God's law, what it cannot do is save you. What it can do is reveal your need for a savior and point you to Christ. And so the first purpose of the law is to reveal our need for Jesus by revealing the extent of our sin. Romans 4.15 says, because the law brings about wrath... For where there is no law, there is no transgression. How would I know whether or not I've sinned against God unless the law would tell me and the word of God would point it out? Romans 7, 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, <coughs> I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said you shall not covet. Andrew Jukes uh, said this, Satan would have us to prove ourselves holy by the law which God gave to prove us sinners. What is the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law is that it reveals our sin and our need for a savior. As we continue to read, we also get to see the purpose of the law was to point us to Christ point us to Jesus. What then is the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgression till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. So the law was given with a temporal purpose. It was given to point us to one who would come to save us because Jesus Christ is our mediator. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is a text that we keep going back to. He, speaking of God the Father, made him, speaking of God the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. And what the law drives us to is our inadequacy to obey it fully apart from the Holy Spirit who changes our hearts and gives us new desires therein. And so the reason for the law is it points us to our inadequacy. And then thirdly, the, the purpose of the law is it reveals the will of God. Uh, the law was given because it was God's will that it would be 
given, and we read about how it was given through angels and a mediator. The text goes on to say, um, it was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. So it was the will of God that the law should come. How did the law come? The text doesn't tell us directly how these angels were involved, but the angels helped give the law to Moses. The angels were involved, and, and Moses, of course, is a mediator. Now the question then presents itself, what in the world does verse 20 mean? We can consider this, it was the will of God that the law be given, but what does it mean that now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one? Well, there's um, some confusion among Bible students about what exactly is talked about here. Many suggest that it's perhaps talking about the fact that when it comes to the Mosaic law, it was given through a mediator, through Moses and the angels. But when it came to the promise to Abraham, it was given directly by God. And some argue this is talking about the superiority of the promise over the inferiority of the law. But regardless of what stance you take, and we can always talk about it later if you've got a good explanation for this, uh, what we know is that the law was given by the will of God. So what is the purpose of the law? To reveal our sin, to point us to Christ, and to fulfill the will that God had provided for it. Paul asks a second question that would be on their minds, and it's this. Is the law then against the promises of God? Um, Paul is asking, is the law, does it contradict uh, the promises of God. After all, are they in competition with one another? Paul says, absolutely not. In the most emphatic way possible, with a, a, in the Greek, a double negative, meganoita, he says, certainly not, may it never be. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. Paul says the law has a unique purpose, and the promise of God had a unique purpose. They don't contradict one another. They complement one another. God gave us the promise through who, which would be fulfilled through Christ. And the law was given to reveal our need for Christ and point us to the Savior. That's why Paul says, for if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. If the law could give life, which it can't, because of our flesh and our sinfulness, it reveals the righteousness of God, but apart from the Holy Spirit, we cannot serve God and find acceptance before him apart from a changed heart. It says, if it could give life, it would, but it can't. Verse 22 but the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. When you open up the scriptures, it reveals your and my desperate need for Christ. It reminds us that all of us miss the mark, all of us fall short, that all of us cannot please God in our own ability because of our inadequacy, and it drives us to a place of trusting in Jesus, that the promise of faith in Jesus Christ might be given to whom? To those who believe. Notice there it doesn't, the text does not say that the promise of God might be given to those who behave righteously. 
in obedience to the law. It says those who believe. What places us in a right standing with God is not our performance in obedience to the law. What places us in a right standing with God is our faith in Christ and the promises he has provided, including the promise given to Abraham fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Somebody might be asking this morning, it sounds like you're giving us some license to sin this morning. After all, we're justified by faith and not by the works of the law. The law had a purpose to reveal our sin and drive us to our knees and trust in Christ as our Savior and Lord. In the words of Paul in Romans chapter 6, how shall we who, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? We have been crucified with Christ. We have been united with him in his death. We've been united with him in his resurrection. And the moment you trust in Christ and receive him by faith, something changes. You become a new creation. You receive a new heart. And the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your heart. And although you are justified by faith alone, you won't continue in your sin. You will, as Ephesians 2 verse 10 says, you become his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? Absolutely not. May it never be. We've been changed. We've been transformed. We have the Holy Spirit who resides in us. This morning, we're reminded because the promise to Abraham does not con contradict but is compatible with the law that was given and its purpose, we can be assured that we are justified in Christ by faith and not by the works of the law. That's how we find acceptance in the Lord. This morning, if I could give us three takeaways in light of our text, the first is this, admit your inadequacy this morning. Admit your inadequacy to find favor before a holy God or a right standing before a holy God by anything other than placing your faith in him. Don't put your trust in your performance. Don't put your trust in your ability to obey the law, but put your trust in the promise of God which gives us the assurance of our salvation. You know, after you're saved, sometimes we think that what brings us acceptance before God is our performance. You know, now that I'm saved, I gotta, I gotta do what's right again and again and again. Whether you do what's right or not, even though you'll be changed and transformed, you wouldn't want to anymore. What brings you acceptance before God, even in this process of sanctification, is not how well you perform, but it's still based on the promise of God. And so this morning, admit your inadequacy, and then secondly, Admit Christ's sufficiency and put your faith and your trust in him. Um, in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7, we're reminded of this as we consider this time of the year. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given and the government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Admit his uh, sufficiency. Of the increase of his government 
and peace there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even for forever the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this admit the sufficiency of the coming of Christ as a babe in a manger who would grow up to die on a cross and then who promises to come back again as the ruling reign as the ruler over all things Luke chapter 2 verses 10 to 11 says, then the angel said to them, this is the shepherds, do not be afraid for behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which will be for all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. Admit the sufficiency of Christ. This is good news for all people. And as we admit the sufficiency of Christ, it invites us to share that with the lost world around us. So, so first, admit your inability, trust in Christ's sufficiency, and then lastly this morning, declare the truth faithfully. Declare the truth faithfully. You and I will have opportunities to share this good news with someone this week. There is someone who God has placed on our hearts and minds that we need to be praying for, that when the opportunity is presented, we can invite them to a dinner or invite them to a church gathering or to a musical or, or, or invite them into a spiritual conversation and lead them to Christ. I'll, I'll close with this last illustration. Um, on Friday, uh, we have a co-op, a home suite, homeschool who meets uh, in our building, and they came for our X, XYZ um, luncheon, and they had performed, and we have one of our daughters who was in that, and uh, we have a video of that that was taking place, and so my wife sent it over to her family, and one of the songs they were singing, I think it was... Um, uh, Little manger, is that the one we sent over? One of those. It was, it, was, it was one that had at least some gospel in there, right? And she sent it out to her family, um, not just the ones who live in the U.S., but in Cambodia as well. And it was just funny to hear their reactions. They were saying, why are they already singing Christmas music and it's not even Christmas? And they were asking other questions uh, that, what an opportunity to share the good news of the gospel during this time of the year. Send a quick video. I mean, we love to watch the kids, especially the musical that's coming. But as Pastor Greg had mentioned earlier, what we tell our kids is it's all about Jesus. And it's all pointing to him. Can we pray this morning? Father, we are grateful. We are grateful this morning to come together to worship in song, in giving, uh, in celebration of the season of Advent in, in your word. I pray this morning that your word that we have just read would give us the assurance of the one true gospel, that as believers we are justified by faith and not by the works of the law. We are made right before a holy God as guilty sinners, not by our performance, but by the promise of God given to Abraham, fulfilled in Christ Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. Father, I pray that we would faithfully share this good news with those in our circles of influence. I pray for the person that is on the minds of each one here today, who we will have an opportunity to pray for and to invite and to share the good news of the gospel. And I pray, Lord, that we would see the fruit of that and that you would get all the honor, glory, and praise. Father, if there's someone here today who would say, I've never put my faith and trust in Christ, but I'm ready to. 
I'm not going to trust in my own ability. I'm going to trust in Christ's sufficiency. I pray that they can express this right now from their heart. Father, I admit my need for Jesus. I admit that I'm a sinner and that sin separates me from you, a holy God. But I believe that's why you sent Jesus. You sent Jesus to be born in a manger, to die on a cross, and to take my place. Today I make Jesus my Savior to forgive my sins, my Lord, the one I'm going to follow all the days of my life into eternity. Thank you, Father, for the assurance of my salvation. Father, we praise you for these things and ask them in Jesus' name. Amen.